Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, as we continue our series uh, through the second book of the Bible. Uh, What are some examples in the Bible of people fearing God, not including our text? We're going to hold off on our text for now. But outside of our text, what are some examples in the Bible of people fearing God? Caleb. When Daniel um, and his friends chose not to eat the the meat um, and the food of the king, um, Nebuchadnezzar, but chose to eat vegetables instead to honor um, God. Daniel and his friends uh, with the, the, the king's food. Another example. Fearing God. Joseph, Joseph in Egypt, to refuse Potiphar's wife. Yes. Right. Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife, fleeing from that temptation. How can I do this um, before God? Excellent. Another example. Fearing God. The apostles, when they refused not to preach the gospel, um, and the religious leaders brought them in and told them not to do it anymore, and they went right back out and, and did it and said, we are called to fear God and, and not men. Yeah. The apostles disobeying the Sanhedrin in order to obey Christ in proclaiming the gospel. Astrid. While you're thinking about it, I did see a hand behind you. Esther. Uh, Joshua and Caleb, when they went into the promised land, and um, the 12, out of the 12 spies, only them two trusted God and feared God that God would give them the land, and the other 10 said, no way, they're too, they're too scary. And then they continued to even keep that when all the people wanted to follow their 10, they still feared God to say, no, God can give us the land. So Joshua and Caleb. Another example. Yes. Um, King Jonah, um, both just at, on the boat when, when he was fleeing um, to uh, Tarsus, um, yeah. he, the people on the boat feared mm-hmm. because of the storm and then feared, even, feared God even more after yeah. the storm ceased. Mm-hmm. The, the sailors on the ship that Jonah was in. All right. And tonight, uh, God, uh, we're going to see in our passage of Scripture, Another great example God has given us of fearing Him. I'm going to read our text to us. It's Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, through the end of the chapter. Please stand in honor of the Word of God. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, 
because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives. I'm sorry, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. I have a question that I put in the bulletin for our discussion. Uh, What is the main idea of this passage? And uh, keep in mind the context that we studied last week. What is the main idea of this passage, do you think? Enoch. God keeping Israel safe, okay. Other thoughts? The main idea. Liz? The, the nation is multiplying and growing in size. Um, that's God keeping his covenant promise to Abraham. God, God is fulfi- continuing to fulfill his promise in multiplying the nation of Israel. So, a continuation of what we saw in the, the, the passage last week. And God's plan will not be thwarted by anything that Pharaoh seeks to do or the Egyptians seek to do to keep Israel from multiplying. God's purpose will not be thwarted, not even by Pharaoh. Excellent. And then a second question, uh, what does this passage reveal about the king of Egypt? What does this passage reveal about the king of Egypt? Egypt. Yes. All right. He didn't fear God. So there's a contrast. Yes. Priya. Pharaoh's heart was heightened. Became heightened instead of maybe one of the of God concerning Israel. Pharaoh had a hard heart, and that's going to be. Comp- even become even clearer as we go on through the book of, of Exodus. Anything else that we can say that this passage reveals about the king of Egypt? Yes, there's a... I think in some way he was trying to stop the, you know, the population from growing by getting rid of the males. In a way, he feared the Negroes. Mm-hmm. We saw last time that he was afraid that as they got more and more numerous that when Israel or when Egypt would be attacked they would join the, the enemy in fighting against Egypt and then they would escape. And they had been a blessing to Egypt and Pharaoh feared losing them. Certainly see that Pharaoh was evil as uh, he commands uh, putting to death the uh, Hebrew baby boys. All right, we're going to get into this passage together. Uh, just remember the context from what we studied uh, la- last time uh, that in God's plan, Israel was in the land of Egypt. 
Genesis gives us that background of, of, of how God brought, there's about 70 of them, uh, Jacob and his extended family, how God brought them to Egypt. And God multiplies them there in Egypt um, as God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would do with their descendants. He would make them into a great nation. And there arises a king over Egypt who does not know Joseph. Joseph had been a real blessing to the nation. But a a king arises who does not know Joseph. And uh, he is afraid, as we have spoken of, uh, of what will happen as Israel gets even larger and larger. And so uh, he comes up with a plan uh, for keeping the Israelites from growing any larger or maybe even to diminish them somewhat. And he enslaves them. Um, He puts taskmasters over them, uh, who work them ruthlessly. Uh, But the more that they are worked, the more they multiply. Um, Pharaoh cannot succeed in opposing the plan and purpose of God. God continues to multiply them, even while they are being so severely oppressed. And that brings us to our text tonight. In the first half of our text, we see, I'm sorry, the first third of our text, we will see the midwives fear God. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, Stop right there. Notice that the Israelites are called Hebrews in this passage. Abraham was called a Hebrew in Genesis 14, verse 13. The term Hebrew may have originally referred to the descendants of Eber, who was a great-grandson of Shem. And there are references to Eber and his descendants in Genesis 10, 24, the table of nations, and also in chapter 11, verses 16 through 26, the genealogy that goes to Abraham. The term Hebrew is used repeatedly in the Bible to refer to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the Hebrews. And over time, the term was replaced by the term Israelites, meaning the descendants of Israel, the name that was given by God to Jacob. Now, we see here in this verse that the king of Egypt gives an evil command to the Hebrew Midwives. Midwives aided at childbirth by taking the newborn, cutting the umbilical cord, washing the baby, salting it, I would presume to uh, prevent um, infection or to to kill any infection there, there might be, and wrapping the baby. We read in the book of Genesis that Rachel had a midwife uh, helping her when she was in labor with Benjamin. We read also in Genesis of how Tamar had a midwife helping her when she gave birth to Perez and Zerah. Now, these are midwives for the Hebrew women, and they appear to be Hebrews themselves uh, for the two names 
uh, Shifra and Pua are Semitic names, not Egyptian names. Uh, Hebrew is one language in a family of languages called the Semitic languages. Or or can say the Hebrews were one people and a group of peoples called the Semitic peoples um, who descend from Shem. Now, these names are Semitic names, not Egyptian names, so that would seem to indicate that these midwives are are Hebrews themselves, and certainly uh, they are midwives for the Hebrew women. Now, it stands out that the names of these two midwives are given to us, because there's not many names given to us in this narrative. We're never told what Pharaoh's name is, just his title is given either king of Egypt or Pharaoh, that's a title. Um, we're, we're not given the name of the, the daughter of Pharaoh who rescues uh, Moses and cares for him. Um, we're not given the names of the, the uh, magicians um, that serve um, Pharaoh. Um, we're not given the names of a lot of people um, in the narrative. We're given the names of Moses and his family um, and just... Uh, a, a few others. So it really stands out here in verse 15 that we are given the names of these two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. It appears that their names are given because of how very exemplary their fear of God was. So what they do here is memorialized in the text. Shifra and Pua appear to be heads of a group of midwives. Two midwives would not have been sufficient for so many Israelites. We talked about last time, there probably were around two million Israelites at this time. These midwives refer to other midwives in verse 19. If you look at verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, uh, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They don't say before we come to them. They say before the midwife comes to them. So referring to other midwives. And the Egyptian government, which held tight organizational controls over Egyptian society, employed overseers to superintend nearly all types of work, a system not unlike the professional guilds of medieval Europe. So Shifra and Pua appear to be the heads of a group of midwives. Let's continue in verse 16. Here is what Pharaoh says Uh, to the Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Talks about uh, when you serve as a midwife and see the Hebrew women on the birth stool. Uh, the birth, apparently women crouched down upon such a stool when they gave birth. The king commands the midwives to secretly kill the Hebrew baby boys at birth. It was the males whom Pharaoh feared would rise up against Egypt. If you look back at verse 10, he said, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. It was the males who would serve in any military exercise, uh, those are the ones that Pharaoh is afraid of. 
He commands that all the Hebrew baby boys be killed at birth secretly by the midwives. This is his effort, his second effort, uh, to keep the Israelites from growing any further. The first effort didn't work. So now this is what he is, this is how he's approaching it. He continues here to foolishly try to oppose God's purpose. A purpose that God had revealed to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob on multiple occasions. I have a question. Does Pharaoh's plan to kill the baby boys remind you of a similar event elsewhere in the Bible? It's pre- in the New Testament, mm-hmm. when Christ was born, yes. they have to take, um, in Matthew chapter 2, they have mm-hmm. to take um, Jesus to Egypt. Yes. In Matthew 2. Herod will give the order for all the baby boys in Bethlehem to be killed as he seeks to kill the one that the Magi refer to when they say that one who has been born king is the, been born king of the Jews. This reminds us of that. What we have here with the Pharaoh seeking to put to death all the newborn Hebrew boys is part of the unfolding of the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. When God said to the serpent, I have it in your notes, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. There would be enmity between the offspring of the serpents, those who would follow the serpent, those who would live under the influence of the serpent, and the woman's offspring, leading all the way, a, a line that will lead all the way up to Christ. Christ will be the ultimate offspring. But there would be enmity all the way up until coming of Christ between those who follow after Satan and God's people, the people from whom will come the the Messiah. And here we see Pharaoh under the influence of Satan seeking to destroy all the Hebrew baby boys. Now the offspring of the serpent will not succeed in destroying the offspring of the woman. But from an earthly perspective, if the midwives disobey the king, they they can expect to be executed. Normally, if Pharaoh gives a command and you rebel against that command, you can expect that he will put you to death. Think about the Pharaoh whose dreams Joseph interpreted and how he hanged the chief baker. Let's see what happens here in verse 17. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The midwives rightly understood that they were ultimately responsible to God for their conduct. We're told that they feared God. We see here that they courageously obeyed God, even though it meant disobeying the most powerful ruler in the world and would likely cost them their lives. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They had courage to do so because they feared God far more then they feared Pharaoh. Now, they probably feared Pharaoh. Who would not fear Pharaoh? But they feared God far more. And when you fear God far more, that gives you courage to obey Him whatever the cost may be. The apostles would do the same. Peter and John disobeyed the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, 18-20. We read, So the Sanhedrin called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And as they went forth from there, they did that very thing. They continued to speak of what they had seen and heard. They proclaimed, began, continued to proclaim Christ. All the apostles disobeyed the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 and following. We read, And when the, the, the Sanhedrin had brought them, they sent them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And that's exactly what they proceeded to do. So that's the first section. The midwives feared God. In the second section, we see that God rewards the midwives. He rewards the midwives. Look at verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, now we don't know how long it took before the, the king realized that these baby boys are not being put to death as I ordered. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. Now this is no small matter to be summoned by Pharaoh like this. He has absolute power in the land. You you can't appeal a decision of Pharaoh. He's the dictator. He's the sovereign ruler. This is no small matter. Verse 19. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So that's their answer to the king's question, why have you done this and let the male children live? Now the truthful answer would be that they feared God and that it would be wrong in God's sight to do as the king commanded. That would be the truthful answer. 
But instead of giving the truthful answer, they answer the evil king deceptively. Apparently, in order to protect innocent human life, possibly the lives of baby boys, the other midwives, and themselves. Now, this raises a question. Is it ever right to speak deceptively to a person intent on doing evil? Some theologians say no, such as John Murray in his book, Principles of Conduct. Other theologians say, yes, there are times when it is right to speak deceptively to a person intent on doing evil. Some theologians say yes, such as John Frame in his book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life. We know from Scripture that, that God tells the truth and that he requires us as his people to tell the truth. But are there times, rare times, when it is right to speak deceptively to a person who's intent on doing evil? I agree with John Frame that there are times when it is right to do so. And I want to show you in Scripture why I say so. There are Scripture passages where God's people answered evil people who were intent on doing evil deceptively with apparent divine approval. Think of Rahab. Let, let's look at the passages about Rahab. Turn over to Joshua chapter 2. The book of Joshua chapter 2. What was Rahab's ethnicity or nationality? Uh, Canaanite. Uh, she lived in Jericho. The Lord had given an instruction uh, to uh, Israel uh, to enter into the promised land of Canaan um, and to, to fight against the Canaanites, uh, to put them to death. Um, all the way back in Genesis, uh, God foretold to Abraham that his descendants would be in, uh, pressed in another nation, which would be Egypt, and then that God would bring them back to Canaan. Um, but it would be after 400 years because the sins of the Amorite have not yet reached their full completion. When God brings Israel into the promised land and gives the command to put the Canaanites to death, is because God is using the Israelites as God's instrument of judgment upon a wicked people. We have multiple passages that speak of the wickedness of the Canaanites. And the first city that Joshua and the Israelites come to is Jericho. And God gives clear instructions that they are to put to death everyone in that city. But before um, they begin the attack, they send spies into Jericho. And uh, Rahab is a Canaanite who lives in Jericho, and uh, she welcomes the spies into her home and hides them. We're going to pick that up here in Joshua chapter 2. Beginning at verse 
And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Now that's not, not true. She, she knows, uh, she's heard the reports about the Israelites. She knows who they are. But she says to them, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So she deceives those who are are seeking them out. Uh, Those who are seeking them out certainly would have put them to to death. Uh, She has hidden them. And she deceives them and says, uh, they're not here, when they actually were there. They're not here. Um, They went out that way. Go after them. She did that to protect these two Israelite men who she knows um, serve the true God. She's heard the reports about the Israelites and what the Lord had done for them. Um, And she protects them uh, with her deception. She protects them from evil people uh, who were intent on putting them to death. Now, let's see what else is said about this. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 16. Chapter 6 records the victory at Jericho. Now, Rahab had asked the spies uh, to spare her and her family um, in the attack, and they agreed to do so if she put the scarlet cord out the window. Look at verse 16. At the, seventh, and at the seventh time, that was of the Israelites going around Jericho, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So, notice the reason given to the Israelites why um, Rahab and her family are not to be put to death because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Her hiding them went hand in hand with deceiving those who came to uh, find them and put them to death. Go on to James chapter 2, which also refers to what Rahab did. James chapter 2. Verse 25. James is talking about the truth that if you have saving faith and are declared righteous by God, then that's going to be evidenced by good works that will follow your faith. Verse 25, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works 
when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Don't confuse what James means when he says justified by works with what Paul says when he says justified by works. When James says that she was justified by works, he's saying that her righteous standing was evidenced by her works. But what I want you to see is what's, how Rahab is commended here. In the same way, what was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? What she did in receiving the messengers and sending them out by another way showed that she was righteous. And do understand that her receiving the messengers and sending them out by another way, that did include that deception that we saw. So this this verse says that was righteous what she did. So it gives divine approval to what she did, which would include the deception. Let me give you another example. That is Elisha. Turn over to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, Elisha is a prophet uh, sent by the Lord to the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom uh, has been continually attacked by the nation of Syria. And yet God has miraculously uh, enabled Elisha to know what the king of Syria plans as far as his attacks upon Israel. It's like Elisha can hear what the king is saying as they're, they're putting their strategy together, uh, their military strategy. And Elisha, this is by divine revelation. God gives Elisha this revelation so that he can tell the king of Israel the plans of the king of Syria and thwart those plans. Now, the king of Syria is like, who is the traitor here? Who keeps telling Israel our strategy? And someone said, it's not that one of us is telling the strategy. It's that the man of God, Elisha, he knows what you say in your bedroom. And he tells the king of Israel. And so the king of Syria sends out a detachment of soldiers Uh, to come and to capture Elisha and to take Elisha back to the king of Syria. And we would not expect his life to be spared. We would expect them to take his life. Let's pick it up here in 2 Kings chapter 6 at verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, that's against Elisha, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. They have no idea that that it's Elisha himself who's speaking to them. But he tells them, after the Lord strikes them with blindness, Follow me, I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. They're seeking Elisha, I'll bring you to him. This is not the place, I'll, I'll bring you to the place. And he led them to Samaria. That was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. 
So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. It would be like leading them to the police headquarters. Or, or, or leading them to the king's fortress. Yeah. Leading them right into the hands of, of the enemy. Right. So he deceived them. They were looking for him. The Lord strikes them with blindness. He says, I'll, I'll lead you to the man you're looking for, but that's not true. He takes them to the king. Right. Now, it would appear that this is with divine approval because Elisha is ministering as the Lord's prophet. The Lord is directing him in what he says, in what he does. It appear this is according to the Lord's direction that he does this. Another example is with Jeremiah. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 38. We're going to start at verse 14. In verse 14, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? Because Jeremiah, as he prophesied, he was saying things that the, the, the kings did not want to hear. So Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, in in fact, what what Jeremiah prophesied was was viewed by the kings as treason. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. And then Jeremiah proceeds to give the word of the Lord uh, to Zedekiah, that they are not to um, resist what's going to happen as God brings the Babylonians against them, uh, but they are to submit to the Lord's discipline upon them that will come through Babylon. It's not something that Zedekiah would want to hear. Go down to verse 24. Verse 24, Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you and come to you and say to to you, Tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. That's not true. That's not what Jeremiah told the king. The king is telling him to deceive these individuals who would want to put Jeremiah to death for what Jeremiah really said. He says, if they ask you, tell them, give them a different story. I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been overheard. 
We see here as Jeremiah follows the instruction of King Zedekiah and he deceives those who come to him asking, what, what did you say to the king? If he had spoken the truth, they could very well have taken Jeremiah's life. These are evil men with evil intent. Jeremiah deceives them, saying he said something that he didn't really say. It appears that he does this at the Lord's direction. Again, he's a prophet of the Lord. Um, he's acting at the direction of the Lord, speaking at the direction of the Lord. It appears that this has divine approval. Now, on top of these examples, there are passages where God acts so that evil people would be deceived. There are times where God has acted so that evil people would be deceived. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 22. <clears throat> where God sent a lying spirit against King Ahab. King Ahab was the ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, he was an evil man who led the northern kingdom in idolatry, along with Queen Jezebel. In 1 Kings 22, we're going to pick it up at verse 19. And Micaiah said, Micaiah is a true prophet of the Lord. Micaiah said to Ahab, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Because Jehoshaphat and Ahab are talking about going into battle um, at Ramoth Gilead. And they wanted to know, should we do this? Well, Micaiah says, The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So this is going to be God's judgment upon Ahab. He's going to fall in battle. And one said one thing, and another said another. Then his spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, By what means? He said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. And that is explaining what had just happened, how Ahab's prophets... Um, had claimed to have a word from the Lord um, that if he went to Ramoth Gilead, he would succeed uh, in battle. And uh, he will follow that. He will go there and he will not succeed. Uh, he will die with God's judgment. But what I want you to notice is that God sent um, a lying spirit uh, to deceive Ahab through the mouth of his prophets. And then one more example, which is actually in prophecy of something that is yet to come. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 9.
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one. The lawless one is a title for the future Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is God's future judgment upon people who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. God will send them a strong delusion in the days of the Antichrist. In the time of the Great Tribulation, God will send them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. According to God's plan, they will be deceived. It will be His judgment upon them. So, it seems that if you come back to our text, Exodus chapter 1, I've shown you some passages which lead me to say that there are times when it is right uh, to deceive someone who is intent on doing evil. Coming back to our text, question is, was it acceptable in God's sight for Shifra and Puah to answer Pharaoh deceptively? In our text, the king asked in verse 18, why have you done this and let the male children live? Their response is deceptive. They say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. Was this acceptable in God's sight for them to do? To deceive the Pharaoh in this way? I believe it was acceptable for two reasons. First, Pharaoh was wickedly seeking to kill innocent people and Shifra and Puah's intention was to save innocent lives, making the situation similar to the above examples with Rahab, Elisha, and Jeremiah. And the second reason why I would say it was acceptable in God's sight is because God rewards the midwives. Look at the next verse. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Look look at how God rewards the midwives. First of all, in verse 20 it says, So God dealt well with the midwives, meaning God protected the midwives. Um, Pharaoh didn't take their lives. God protected them. Continue on in verse 20. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. The the very thing that Pharaoh tried to prevent occurred. In spite of his effort to kill the baby boys by giving this command to the midwives, in spite of his efforts, the people multiplied and grew very strong. You never win when you fight against God. 
God continued to fulfill his purpose. No one can thwart God's purpose. We continue on in verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Which was the very thing that Pharaoh was trying to prevent. The Lord Lord continued fulfilling his promises and even gave the midwives families of their own. Their reward matched what they did in saving babies' lives. God blessed them with the very thing that Pharaoh had commanded them to prevent. Now the king continues to command evil. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, because his second plan didn't work. So now he comes up with a third plan. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Once again, the king continues to foolishly try to oppose God's purpose to multiply the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Enslaving them did not achieve the king's purpose. Ordering the midwives to secretly kill the baby boys did not work. Now he commands all the people of Egypt to be involved in killing the Hebrew baby boys. He changes his policy of trying to kill them secretly to killing them openly. He calls upon all the Egyptians to take any Hebrew baby boy that was born and to throw that baby into the Nile River to its death. Now, how does this last verse here, verse 22, with this third plan that Pharaoh tries to implement... How does this verse relate to what's coming next in Exodus? Caleb? It sets the stage for the miracle of Moses, um, how God preserved Moses as a young child. It sets the stage for how the Lord will rescue Moses from being put to death. This is the edict that is in place when Moses is born in chapter 2. Pharaoh has commanded all the Egyptians, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, it is evident that either numerous other male infants escaped along with Moses, or the decree was eventually revoked, since Moses was not the only male of his generation to survive. We're going to read of how God saved Moses, um, but when Moses leads the Israelites 40 years later um, out of Egypt, uh, we'll we'll see there's, there's a full adult male population. So Pharaoh didn't get very far even with this third plan. But what's important for us right now is that this is the setting for the birth of Moses. 
point is this policy was in force when and where Moses was born. And the very policy that Pharaoh intended to diminish the Israelites was overturned by God to become the channel by which God would raise up and equip the deliverer through whom he would set his people free. God is going to work through this so that Moses is not raised in a Hebrew home, but he's raised in the Egyptian palace. And Acts is going to tell us how he received education, the greatest education one could receive in that time. Part of God's providential preparation of Moses uh, to, to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and to be the mediator through whom the Lord would give them the law. Our text is the background for that. Well, thinking about our text as a whole, we continue to see in our text the Lord's faithfulness to His promises. We continue to see the folly of trying to oppose God's purposes. Whatever Pharaoh does to oppose God's purposes fails, utterly fails. We also see a powerful example of fearing God in the midwives Shifra and Pua. They were ordinary women. They didn't have a special education. Uh, there's nothing special that told to us about them. They were ordinary women who feared God enough to disobey the most powerful ruler in the world. And their fear of God makes them great women of the Bible. We need examples like this. They are an example for us. To spur us on in fearing the Lord. Fearing God above all others. We need an example like the example they give to us. We also see in our text the sanctity of human life. We see that human life is to be protected. The evil Pharaoh sought to take human life, but he did not succeed as God providentially worked. Human life is to be protected, which makes me say that when we vote in America, we need to know that the Democratic Party is staunchly committed to protecting abortion. It, it, it's very, very clear. The Democratic Party in America is staunchly committed to protecting abortion. You need to know that when you vote. You need to know that when you go to the polls. It's grievous how the majority of the people of Ohio voted yesterday. They voted on a constitutional amendment, an amendment to the state constitution to protect abortion. And it passed. That's grievous. That should make us sad to hear that news. Human life is to be protected. From the very start. The Bible teaches that human life starts at conception. 
We certainly need to support our church's ministry outside the Perth Amboy Abortion Clinic. Um, we, we have a small group of brothers and sisters, and they invite others, members in our church to join them. A small group in our church who goes to stand outside the abortion clinic uh, to, to stand there for the unborn. To, to plead with those who come to that clinic to have an abortion. To plead with them to instead of taking human life, to protect human life. And to share with them what they, how they can go about protecting human life and making sure that that baby is going to be, have a home and parents to raise them. And they hold out the word of God. They hold out the gospel as well. As our greatest need is eternal life. We need to support our church's ministry outside the Perth Amboy Abortion Clinic. We see here the sanctity of human life. Any questions or comments on anything that we've seen? We've seen a lot tonight. Yes, Don. Okay, so I have, you know, read these passages about Rahab and midwives, and yes, the Lord honored their faith, but I've never understood the passage that the Lord accepted their lot. I mean, because a lot is sin, the Lord talks about that. So, and I see in the passage um, that we read in number four, where the Lord, even, you know, he talked about giving them over, like he did in Romans, he would give them over to the great mind. But I think that's different than the Lord or even man thinking that we can be, we can deceive in order to protect something because ultimately we're I see it as man trying to protect what God wants when God is holy and He don't need us to lie in order to have His holy eyes. So I just never understood those passages to mean that the Lord honors the lie, He honors their faith. It's not that God God needs us. It's that he instructs us to protect human life. And so when God instructs us to protect human life, and there is someone who's intent on taking human life, I believe that he calls us to, to do what is needed to seek to protect that, 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 that human life. Priya. Yes. So it would that's an example of them fearing the true God of also. Yes. Yes. Um, when Abraham uh, lied to one of the kings yeah. about Sarah, yeah. would you put that in this category? No way. No, no, he he failed there to protect his wife. Now that that that, that is that was sinful what he did. You know the the Bible teaches us to, to speak the truth, 
um, and to to protect others, um, and he didn't do either of those. And what we're, what we're talking here about, you know, rare circumstances where it's an exception um, to to speaking the truth. And it's only because we live in a, a fallen, evil world. So, you know, there were Christians in World War II in Europe who they they hid Jews. And the Nazi SS, the secret police, would come to the door and they would ask, are you hiding Jews? And so Christians would have to try to continue to protect them, continue to, to try to hide them by, by, by saying no. Because if they say, yes, we're hiding Jews, then the SS are going to take them off to a death camp, take them away to their death. So when you live in a fallen, evil world, Christian living can become quite complicated. Any other questions or comments? It should, it should never be an easy thing to deceive another person for, for these purposes that we're talking about. It should never be easy. It, it, it's a last resort. Yes. Does that, does that relate to in uh, Matthew 10, Behold, I am sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents as doves? Uh, there might be some connection, but I don't think that's really, that's not what Jesus is thinking about right there. Okay. Um, he's talking about how, um, you know, when you're in a hostile environment, um, as Christ's representative, takes wisdom to know, you know, when to speak, when to be quiet, and so forth. Um, so we're to be innocent as, as doves. Uh, we are to always seek to honor the Lord and please Him. And, and we have to exercise w- w- wisdom in interacting with, with, with those who oppose All right, if there's nothing else, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a God of grace and mercy. In your grace, you came to Abraham and said, I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. Through your offspring, I will bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And Abraham was totally undeserving of your blessing. And you repeated that promise to Isaac and to Jacob, who, like their father and grandfather, were unworthy of your blessing. We deserve just the opposite of your blessing. We deserve your judgment. But in fulfillment of your promise, you formed a people for yourself in Egypt. You formed the nation of Israel. 
that you then redeemed with your outstretched arm, foreshadowing what you would do through the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, and freeing us from slavery to sin that we might serve you as your redeemed people. Lord, we thank you for how you were preparing for millennia in the Old Testament for the coming of Christ. The sending of of, of Christ through the nation of Israel to the world. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us that through your Son we might know you and worship you and serve you. Well, thank you for, the, for giving us the ministry of taking the gospel to the world. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be faithful to you. May we fear you. Thank you for the example of Shifra and Pua, who feared you in a circumstance that we may very well not have shown fear of you. We may have shown more fear of, of Pharaoh. But you've given us that great example in those two women. Lord, may we be spurred on to fear you. May we not fear man. May we not uh, fear anything else but you, O Lord. And fearing you above all, Lord, may you give us courage to obey you whatever the cost may be. May we be like Peter and John and the apostles who said that they could not help but continue to speak of Christ because we have to obey God rather than man. We can expect that increased persecution will come to us in this country. We ask, Father, that you would prepare us for any situations that we will be in in the future where we may have to pay a a high price if we obey you. Oh, Lord, prepare us to obey you whatever the cost may be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.